I am in an oil painting. <laughs> There's a guy who did an oil painting of me playing, accompanying a Louis, uh, Louise Brooks film at MoMA. Greetings across whatever you listen to MP3s on. This is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. Hi, I'm your host, Ben Modell, and this is episode 35. We're recording in May of 2020. I'm joined as of this episode and going forward by my uh, co-producer and co-host, Kerr Lockhart. Say hello, Kerr. Hi, Ben. I'm still actually busy with stuff and it's good you're here. I'm going to have a hard time uh, staying uh, on on point. So I'm, I'm glad you're here to remind me what we're all doing here. Thanks for wafting in. Thanks for finding the podcast and sharing it with your friends on social media, forwarding emails. And if you've left a review on iTunes or whatever it's called this month or any place else, it's a huge help to get the word out. But we're really glad you're here listening to examples of silent film accompaniment and insights on how it all happens. Well, episode 35 should be a humdinger, and we've got a nice bunch of stuff lined up for today's program, including a few different recordings on a few different instruments, talking a little bit about the scores I played on them. To give you a rundown, uh, Kerr, why don't you clue our listener in on what's in store on episode 35 today? We're going to be talking about uh, your last live gig before uh, everything shut down, which was for a film called Behind the Door. We're going to be talking about a score you did for that great Russian classic, Strike. Talk a little bit about how you keep your chops in shape when you're not concertizing a couple of times a week, as is normal. And a score for Les Deux Timides. So that's our musical picture for today. Let's start off with an unusual project that puts you in an art museum. Yeah, a big, a really, really big one. I, ironically, this is a case where a gig that I had lined up got canceled and then turned into an online thing through a set of circumstances you couldn't plan on purpose. I was booked to play for something in June at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, the Met turns 150 this year, some point in the summer. And I had been set to play for a bunch of silent films. Um, this is the they, Metropolitan your, Museum of Art with all, the is, huge on 5th Avenue and 84th and 85th and 86th Street. What happened was a friend of my wife, Mona Allen, had sent her this link to the Metropolitan Museum of Art's From the Vaults series. They have a series on their website where they're posting films that have been made by and about the museum you know, sharing art and links to during this crazy time. And Mana is watching them and she sees a couple of silent films that were made by the Met. And she noticed they were posted in complete silence. And she thought, oh, this, this film is kind of interesting, but it doesn't really land. And she mentioned it to me. And I remembered I had been in touch with somebody at the Met about doing this show in June. I thought, oh, well, I know they've already posted these things, but what the heck? And I contacted this person and I said, listen, I see that you're putting these films up. They're really interesting. Do you need music? And one thing led to another, and I've now scored two more short films that they had. They've posted one of them called The Pottery Maker and another one that will be posted uh, later in the summer. Both films were made by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And The Pottery Maker was made in 1926 and directed by Robert Flaherty. That's the guy who made Nanook of the North. And it's a little eight, nine-minute film about a little girl who goes with her grandmother to visit a guy making, you know, with a potter's wheel. So that, that got posted onto their YouTube channel, Third Week of May, and also on their Facebook page. And... What's been interesting is that the film is one of the most highly viewed things that they've posted on their Facebook page. And as of this afternoon, it already hit 166,000 views. But what's been fun is that a lot of people who are watching this are not silent film people per se, but I've looked at the comments. It's all about pottery. What I was very interested in, having just gone through the Iris Barry series at MoMA 
from October through December, which is a salute to the Museum of Modern Art's first film library head curator, where MoMA was saying, hey, film is important and it is an art. We should be studying this and we should make 16 millimeter copies available for schools and museums. And it caught on like wildfire that the the Metropolitan Museum of Art also dove in with motion pictures, not just circulating, but producing short films about things that happen at the museum. The other film that I scored, which will be posted later in the summer, is a visit to the home of Childe Hassam out in East Hampton. He did a lot of watercolors during the teens. And if you see them and you'll think, oh, I know those images. Well, there's two things that strike me. First of all, it's a documentary. Yeah. Secondly, in one case, you have action that's very visually repetitive. You've got a spinning wheel, presumably. What's your approach to those two issues? I wound up playing something. I had a little motif going that's kind of like a sati piece that just happened while I was recording uh, during moments when close-ups of the potter's wheel. But there is a narrative of this little girl and her grandmother coming to the potter's studio, and she inadvertently trips and makes a mess of something, spoiler alert, and then they has to build a new, make a new pot. Typically, a film like this would just be they show up and the potter, through a series of titles, makes the pot, but there's, there's this little story between the grandmother and, and the child. And of um, course, that's both the strength and controversy of Robert Flaherty himself. Yeah, exactly. It works for this little short film, which was staged to a certain degree anyway. There's a really nice article that was posted on the Metropolitan Museum of Art's website all about the film, the making of the film, who's in it, the involvement of Maude Adams, who was well-known in the teens and aughts for playing Peter Pan on stage. And the the grandmother is played by a woman who was General Custer's widow. Uh, but then there's the the article also interviews me about my work, but it's it's an interesting little film as far as scoring it because the forward motion dramatically is is not as quick or as strong as it might be in a traditional narrative. You have to find a balance, and having played for a lot of films like this for several years of the the Silent Film Days Festival or Stum Film Daga in Tromsø, Norway, when I would go, there would be a program called frosty celluloid where they would show polar exploration films and that's frosty like snowman frosty yeah that's what they called it (laughs) frosty celluloid and there are a lot of glaciologists who work there and it's three o'clock in the afternoon but we would get an audience and and as uninteresting as these films of people getting on a boat going through the ocean getting off a boat playing with penguins getting back on the boat and getting stuck in the ice. I mean, they're all kind of the same. You know, a friend of mine who, who's a glaciologist there said, you know, I've been working with the data from that exploration for years, and now I've seen footage of it. But so, so you have a 10, 20, 30-minute film where those, I mean, that's what happens. There's a big ceremony. They get on the boat. They go on the boat. They get stuck in ice. Somebody has to break them free. They get off the boat. They play with the walruses. They hunt. They get they measure things and and so you have to find a way to make it sound like there is drama when there may not be any and follow the the narrative that is on screen. So with the pottery maker, there there is this little story with the little girl at the beginning, and then it dips down into just being the different steps of the the making of the pot. And as soon as one thing winds down you modulate into something else just to keep it interesting because you can't play the same mode, even if it's the same subject matter all the way through. Uh, There's a film that I scored recently for Ned Thanhauser called the Austin floods. And it's a one real actuality. It's footage of a flood in Pennsylvania, but that's something where it's just panning shots of devastation. And so I had to find either moments when they shifted subject matter or just figure, okay, I've been playing this way for two or three minutes. Let me shift keys or go into a different time signature so that uh, it holds the interest of whoever's watching. And as Mana, I think, observed, the music binds shots together. If you look at silent film silently, you can become extremely aware of every cut. And it suddenly just seems like a bunch of cuts, even a, even a, a fiction, a narrative film. 
Right. Um, so and, the music and the helps music... helps helps fuse you to the film. Mm-hmm. I think. All right. So there will be links to, yeah, to uh, all that this stuff. all the stuff uh, on the show notes. So go to silentfilmmusic.com and this episode's page and check out those links there. Yeah. Ben, we were going to talk about your last gig. <laughs> the, last, the last gig I did in front, oh. of, in front of people, yes. Um, this was held in Beatrice, Nebraska, and that is how you pronounce it. It's spelled like Beatrice, but it's pronounced Beatrice. This is the second year in a row that I've been out there for an annual weekend of classic film that's organized by the Gage County Classic Film Institute, working with Janelle Cleveland and Sheila Day. I had gone last year to accompany a Harold Lloyd film because Harold Lloyd is from Burchard, Nebraska, which is the next town over. And this year they were honoring two people you've never heard of. And even in the silent era, you might never have heard of Richard and Maud Wayne. But they were both people who had careers as character performers or supporting players throughout the 1920s, really from the late teens all the way through the end of the silent era or the, the tail end of it. And Richard Wayne has a, a supporting role in Behind the Door. The show is held at the Beatrice Community Players or Community Playhouse, which is a place in Beatrice where mostly it's theatrical productions, but this is where they do some of these film screenings as well as at the local library. And they have a, a Samic console piano. It's in decent shape. And the film Behind the Door is a, a late teens silent starring Hobart Bosworth. It was a film that was restored a couple of years ago by the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. And it's a film I had played for at the Library of Congress. While it is set during and against the backdrop of World War One and placed in, I guess, the last third of it on a submarine, it's kind of a heavy heavyweight melodrama and it's it's got some very strong and stark and extreme elements about what the main characters do with and to each other and i don't know how much of this gets borne out in the clip you're about to hear but i as i have for the last several months been giving myself a note to hold back play a little less if i can and try to treat the the instrument whether i'm playing piano or organ like it's uh, like it's an orchestra and i don't know how successful i was at it it's very easy because a piano is in a way a percussion instrument to keep playing notes to keep the sound going i'm trying to break myself of doing that and to allow the strings to ring a little bit uh, especially in a smaller setting where you know we have 60 70 people and they're right near me you can hold something and let it trail and the audience will fill it in rather than a constant barrage of notes. So it's it's something I'm always working at. And because the elements of the story are kind of high stakes, heavy handed, almost in, like you'd find it in opera, it's available from Flickr Alley in a, in a Blu-ray in a gorgeous restoration. So definitely ch check it out. Here's a few minutes for my live score recorded on my iPhone so you'll have to excuse the sound quality a little bit for Behind the Door recorded live in performance in Beatrice, Nebraska.
live in performance on March 7th, 2020 at the Beatrice Community Players Theater in Beatrice, Nebraska. Yours truly accompanying Behind the Door on a Samic console piano. A film available on Blu-ray and DVD from Flickr Alley starring Hobart Bosworth and Wallace Beery, one of his many bad guy German roles. And a film that also has as a supporting player Richard Wayne, another Beatrice native. Beatrice, like other parts of Nebraska, that area seems to be a hotbed for famous people in Hollywood. My friend Janelle Cleveland, who invited me this year and last year to be part of the festival, has this huge list of famous movie stars and famous people who were worked in Hollywood who are from Nebraska. Henry Fonda, whose home was not far from where we were, Marlon Brando, Robert well, Taylor. Well, yeah, Henry, Henry Fonda acted with those two little Brando kids, Marlon and yes. Jocelyn. Yes, exactly. And there is a Johnny Carson Center for the Arts uh, that's part of the university there. And there's an, a huge lobby area, I guess you could call it, where there's a weekly live radio program called Friday Live or Friday Morning Live hosted by Genevieve Randall. And they have recently begun doing their live arts program. And they brought in a digital piano. I improvised a couple of pieces and Janelle and, and uh, Lorreen Riedizel and I uh, talked about silent film and the connection to, to the area. And they had a, the University Steel Drum Ensemble performance, stuff like that. And even the last night of, of the, the weekend's events, we discovered another Beatrice native who was involved in movies in the silent era. We're standing outside of a restaurant uh, looking at a gorgeous building across the way, I'm talking with a woman from the Gage County Museum about this building and how they have this collection of photographs, some of which were taken inside this by the, a guy named George Baker and who worked in Hollywood or wrote scripts or something like that. I said, George Baker? That sounds so familiar. She said, yeah, George, the middle name starts with a D. So George D. Baker, he was a director at Vitagraph. And some of the best of the Vitagraph comedies that Steve Mass and I have watched at the Library of Congress and at MoMA were directed by this guy, George Baker. Well, oh, he's from Beatrice. Or he, he lived there in his teen years and his, his, in his 20s and was a photographer. And the woman from the, the museum pulled up a bunch of photographs on her phone from their, like, I guess the museum's private drive. But they have all of his papers and his photographs, and they're really well composed. And he was also involved in the theater. But I thought... Oh, great. Here's one more <laughs> important silent film director who's from Beatrice, Nebraska. So here's the so, moral, kids. If you want to succeed in show business, convince your folks to move to Nebraska now. Yeah, 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 ex ex exactly. I, I don't get to play a lot of the big high-profile festivals. I, I've played at the TCM Classic Film Festival a few times, but a lot of the bigger ones. And a lot of us film accompanists, you know, we work, we play different places. There's only so many people who play in Telluride and Portononi and the, and the San Francisco. But there is a, a great value to playing in venues or festivals that are, are not necessarily so large, but you wind up connecting with pieces of silent film history. And in this case... Because of my own exposure to Baker's work, a few of us had this light bulb moment. Oh, my goodness, here's somebody else, and some more research can happen. So there's a great value to doing shows at a, at a suburban library or in the middle of Nebraska or in Boise, Idaho, or northern Norway. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that you wind up connecting with, and it's still it's all important. My name is Barbara Goldman. I live in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida. I've been watching the silent comedy watch party for the past 10 weeks, and I've just been enjoying it immensely. At the beginning, I actually uh, called my sister who lives in Toronto, and I told her about it, and we had watched the first couple of episodes together on the phone while watching it, obviously, on, on, um, on YouTube. I will during the week go back on YouTube and, and watch the previous episode uh, just because I just love, you know, I just love silent film. And I think that, um, that Ben and Steve are just, you know, they're just fantastic, uh, knowledgeable uh, on film, 
Forbes uh, on the silent films, and um, and also I just love Ben's playing. It just adds to the um, to the grandeur of the film. The next recording takes us to Russia. Right, 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 Brooklyn. Yeah, um, our next, yeah, our next performance clip is a film called Strike, directed by Sergei Eisenstein, and this is a screening held at St. Francis College uh, near Borough Hall in Brooklyn, and I've done shows there for Professor Scott Weiss, and it started out doing something once a semester, and now pretty much four shows a semester that were attended by uh, students, uh, communications majors who were taking film studies classes at St. Francis, as well as local seniors. These screenings were being held for free so that we were bringing people in from the outside as as well. And the auditorium at St. Francis has a very nice Steinway A grand piano. And what's been fun is uh, in some in some cases, I wind up helping Scott find or pick the films we'll discuss things from one month to the next well what do you think about this or i'm looking for this who has that is that available and on and on so it's it, what's been fun for me is that i'm able to offer something in terms of programming in my work as a programmer as well and uh, the thing about playing for a film like strike and this takes me back to when i started playing for films and it's still a question i hold myself to is a how much do you lean in the direction of music that sounds like it's from that country? I know that when I started playing for films in college at NYU and I was talking on a regular basis with Lee Irwin about, do I do this? Do I do that? And for something like this, rather than get a book of Russian folk tunes and use that, uh, Lee encouraged me to play what you would call a sound alike. And so what I would do is get a book of Russian folk tunes and play through them and find musical patterns. And so it's possible to play music that sounds like a Russian folk tunes or that sounds like it's from that musical genre, but isn't anything familiar. So it doesn't pull you out, but still sounds like you're in Russia. And every time I do a show like this, I question, is it really necessary? But at the same time, I don't want to play my quote-unquote usual silent film music, which has more of a European roots, because then you wonder, is the audience going to think, well, why are are we hearing something that has more of a French or German uh, ancestry when we're looking at something about the Battle of the Proletariat and the factory workers and all that stuff? So I try to straddle both things so it sounds like we're in russia and still do what i do in terms of film underscoring and one of the the things about the russian cinema is that there's so much drama and energy on screen between not only the high stakes of the story but the russian montage which is something i discussed with my silent film students uh, where you're visually being smacked back and forth. Here's a shot of this. Now, here's a shot of something completely different. And here's a shot of something else. And you're supposed to assemble these things in your head. So you don't want to be too busy that that's distracting. You want to um, really kind of composing counterpoint to the images. Yeah, almost, but without waving your hand saying, hey, this is counterpoint. But just to support what's already there and to try not to get in, in the way. So... What we'll hear now is a few minutes of my live score for Strike by Eisenstein at St. Francis College, performed uh, on an acoustic piano. It's a Steinway A piano recorded with my Zoom H2N, placed on the, the right-hand side of the music rack.
live in performance at St. Francis College in Brooklyn, New York on February 11th, 2020, accompanying Eisenstein's Strike for a group of students and local seniors. Yours truly doing his darndest to do film underscore while also trying to let people know we are in Russia. The Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. Now in a sparkling new restoration by the Library of Congress from 35mm sources comes Baby Peggy in the title role of The Family Secret. Baby Peggy was one of the leading child stars of the 1920s, known because of her star salary as the Million Dollar Baby. The Family Secret poses the question, can a precious and precocious four-year-old warm the heart of her grandfather, cure her mother's chronic depression, rehabilitate her disgraced father, and happily reunite her parents? I bet you can guess the answer to that. Also included are newsreel excerpts and two Baby Peggy shorts unavailable anywhere else in home media, Miles of Smiles and Circus Clowns. Ben, I believe there's a story about Circus Clowns. Yeah, it's an interesting story. One day, George Williman, one of the nitrate vault people at the Library of Congress, was winding through nitrate. George was winding through something that was labeled circus clowns. It could have been newsreel footage of circus clowns. And he's winding through it, and he sees a little child who looks very familiar. Takes a, a little, a couple little pictures and shows them to Rob Stone, and saying, is that baby Peggy? And Rob says, oh my goodness, yes it is. So this was reel two of a short called Circus Clowns starring baby Peggy in a nitrate print with the original language titles. And that's extremely rare. And we were very excited about this. And then I mentioned it to Steve Massa, who remembered that MoMA has a print of Circus Clowns that's basically the first reel and some of the second reel. We put Humpty Dumpty back together again, translated the Czech intertitles from MoMA's preservation. I was able to find the font as an exact match and create title cards for the first reel. And so for the first time in decades, fans and Diana Saracari herself got to see Circus Clowns complete in a gorgeous 35 millimeter rendition. It's recommended by SilentAaron.com and it receives a literally very strong recommendation from DVD Talk. It's available on DVD from TCM Shop, Amazon, Deep Discount, and all sorts of online platforms. So, Ben, as we have lost our opportunities for in-person appearances for you, what are you doing to uh, keep the fingers limber and the mind limber as well? Well, of all things, I've dusted off my piano tuning chops because I'm doing this the silent comedy watch party every week from my apartment. And I, my piano, well, I needed to tune my piano anyway. And then because I hadn't tuned it in quite some time, uh, as happens with pianos that haven't been tuned in a while, it drifted right away, uh, and then I had to retune it, and it would drift. So I've gotten back into that. I, I'm only just this week at a point where I am not just constantly working, but I, I, I now have a little more room in my brain and my schedule to do things like, I don't know, a repair a, a string that broke in October when I was tuning the piano. <laughs> the New Yorker magazine did a video profile on me and my work, and they were going to come over and shoot at the the apartment. We shoveled enough stuff out of the way so we could point the camera in one direction, and it would look good. And I tuned the piano because I hadn't tuned it in a couple of years, and then and a string broke. And I thought, well, this must be really important if a string broke while I'm doing it. But I haven't gotten around to fixing it. But I I, I now have the, all the the elements to, to, to work on. And, you know, every week I tidy things up and it slides out of place again, but I know what to do with it. But I'm not, I'm not plowing through churny exercises <laughs> and, and, and the well-tempered clavier. I hope to have more time where I can just sit down and find newer and better things to play. I think if anything, what I, what I've been working on is playing for one person sitting near me. I don't necessarily nail it every week, but because the silent comedy watch party 
is a thing where I'm playing in somebody's lap. Almost In some cases, literally, I'm trying to remind myself not to play as strenuously as I usually do at a show. Uh, that's the way I, you know, as soon as the film starts and I start that tremolo and I start playing the opening chords, I'm playing with the same gusto, shall we say. And I've realized that if somebody was just sitting next to me, which they kind of are, I probably wouldn't play quite so loud. And so you're like a theater actor who's learning how to adapt to television. <laughs> to a television or to a, you know, doing, doing theater in a phone booth. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's that audience of one. And, mm-hmm. uh, I did not go to a conservatory. I don't have those kind of chops. I don't know if I'll ever achieve that, but you know, a long-term project that I've always wanted to work at is to develop new musical phrasings and, and new things to play. And just for my own sake and for the people who've heard me play a lot, just so they're not bored either. Renee Claire's Le Du to Meet is one of my favorite silent comedies. When Steve Massa and I and Dave Kerr were putting together a series at MoMA called Silent Comedy International a few years ago, uh, that was right at the top of my list. As luck would have it, there was a brand new restoration of the film done once again by the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. One of the nice things about the restorations done by the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is that even if those restorations are done in the digital domain, they wind up with a 35 millimeter print Mm. uh, that's bookable for anybody who still shows 35 and you can book them from the Library of Congress. The Cinema Arts Center on Long Island, where I have been doing a monthly silent film series since the end of 2006, and which I co-program with Dylan Skolnick, uh, this is a film I wanted to do. And what's been great about uh, the series at the Cinema Arts Center is Dylan and I are both up for showing stuff that people maybe haven't heard of. And we've been doing this long enough that we've built up an audience that if, if we show something no one's heard of, we'll still get some kind of an audience. It's not like Buster Keaton numbers, but people will turn out, you know, our audience trusts us and we're showing something like a French film they never heard of by a director they never, they've never heard of, starring people they never heard of, they'll still turn out for it. And so one of the nice things about the restorations done by the San Francisco Silent Film Festival is that even if those restorations are done in the digital domain, they wind up with a 35 millimeter print that's bookable for anybody who still shows 35. And that's nearly all of those are but you can book them from the Library of Congress. And at the at the Cinema Arts Center, we have variable speed 35. And when we can show 35, we like to. And especially since this was a new restoration and it was available on 35, we got the print. It's I think it's the film he Claire Renee Claire makes after Italian Straw Hat. And I like this one a little bit better than the Italian Straw Hat. Uh, and one of the reasons we wound up running it at MoMA is that Straw Hat is the one thing, it's always been available on 35, it's been available on DVD, and people have seen it, and we really want, and so this is a chance, oh, great, we can try, you know, we can bring out this this really funny film. And so what we had, what we had to do is find somebody who could do the live translation, and we had the, the titles from, we got a list of all the, uh, the, the, the English subs, and Dylan's uh, nephew, Miles, who's who's a big film guy, big film fan. He did the translation. Can and we unpack that great, a little? What's, what, how is that actually done? What is he doing? Oh, he's at, basically, at he's got a script. He's got a script uh, with all the English language translations of each of the intertitles. Foreign language title hits the screen, and then you hear somebody read the translation of that into a microphone. Ah, and oh, so it's oral. Rather than doing, yeah, rather, you know, uh, for... In some cases, if you have a film that does not have subs printed in or digitally burned in, this is what we used to do uh, and is still done in some places. And there's a live performance element to that that's, that's kind of fun. 
and you need to have somebody who knows the language. Miles spoke French, so he, he knew whether we were on the right title or not. And this was something that I did and I accompanied on, on the digital theater organ that we use out at the Cinema Arts Center. So what you'll hear in this recording is the theater organ score, and you'll hear me dip down. Uh, as soon as I see a title card, I come way down so that Miles can read the title, and then I'll come back up as soon as he's done. So there's that rhythm. You don't stop. But I got to come down so that the music is continuing. So what you'll hear from, I think this is January of 2020, uh, at the Cinema Arts Center, yours truly on the virtual theater pipe organ with live spoken translations of French intertitles to Le Deux to Me, the comedy directed by René Claire. At the Cinema Arts Center, December 11th, 2019, yours truly accompanying Le Du Timide, the René Claire comedy from 1928, with live translation of the French intertitles. And that is a film that I can't tell you how pleased I am that there is a, a new print, a, a bookable and available done by the San Francisco Silent Film Festival. It's on DCP, and there's a print you can get from the Library of Congress. But it's so funny. It's like a Hal Roach two-reeler, but done as a five-reel comedy. And we, when we showed, when Steve and Dave Kerr and I uh, programmed it at Silent Comedy International, at the moment, we paired it with a Charlie Chase short. We ran What Price Goofy? But one of the most exciting things for me is, you know, when you get to share a film that you know is good and you, you know this is an uncharted territory for an audience, 
after the show, people just kept coming up to me and Dylan and saying how much they enjoyed the film and how funny it was. And you know, they didn't know what to expect. They just knew that we had programmed it, but they, they got such a kick out of it. I really believe that there is a pathway from a film being around or restored or available to home video by getting it booked. I see complaints uh, on forums and social media. Oh, why won't somebody put this out? Why won't put somebody put that out? And sometimes it's a picture that's locked down by copyright. But a lot of times, the best thing you can do, even if it is under copyright, because that's starting to, things are going PD and some studios are starting to back off on that stuff a little bit, is get the film booked places. Because if there's buzz coming back to different people from Kino or uh, Flickr Alley or Criterion go to festivals and they hear the film has gone over well, they see it go over well, or programmers will look and see what everybody else is programming. And, oh, well, the Cinema Arts Center ran Le Dutimido. We should run that. Uh, it's one of the things I love about uh, performing arts. If it's a comedy, they're laughing. And if they're not laughing, then it's not a comedy. And if it's a really fine drama, the audience is extremely silent and involved and connected. And you, you can literally hear that. But it's empirical. It's measurable. It's not something we can debate about. Oh, this is good or not. It's like you can hear the audience. They tell you. Yeah. I started playing at the Cinema Arts Center in the end of 2006, but they, they from the beginning, always had silent film as part of the, the, the classic film landscape there. And, you know, if we show something like this or uh, an Ozu silent, people will show up because we do this series on a monthly basis and it's always good. And what, one of the fun byproducts of it is that we've been able to build up an audience for, for someone like Douglas Fairbanks just by showing his film. So it's, if you if you live uh, within driving distance of Huntington, New York, do check out the Cinema Arts Center out on Long Island. So, Ben, it's time for our frequently asked questions. I'm going to take a little walk back this uh, stay-at-home time. A lot of people are sharing favorites online, and I realized when they were asking about what's influential in music – that I totally grew up with Peter and the Wolf. And the thing that everybody loves about Peter and the Wolf is you know what's happening because everybody has a tune. And so many of us were introduced to classical music or orchestral music with that format where everybody gets a tune. That's kind of a crude version of the light motif where there's a little musical kernel, a little tiny nugget that's associated with not only characters, but sometimes themes or ideas. How is that important? Is that to you? Is that something you use or is it something yeah. that could get in the way? The answer to both questions is yes. <laughs> uh, I think that a leitmotif helps anchor an audience to a character or to their internal journey. And the tricky part is knowing how often to use the leitmotif. My own rule of thumb, and I'm, I'm I'm always open to revisiting it and changing it and refining it is that for a main theme or a love theme, there are three or four places in every film where it goes. And I try not to go beyond that number so that it becomes a subliminal thing that anchors a certain dramatic element in the back of the mind of the viewer without it hitting you over the head like the hunter's theme in Peter and the Wolf. And <laughs> a lot of silent film scoring, if you look at the cue sheets from the silent era, uh, you'll you'll see that a lot. And, and there are some of the recordings you'll hear of the older organists who were playing at the time who used the, these things. And even something like the Carl Stalling scores uh, from the Warner Brothers cartoons, where A, he had been a film organist in the 20s, and B, he had this catalog of songs that were owned by Warner Brothers, and it's a cartoon. I try not to overuse themes. I I try to have them if I can, but I find just personally, it's just personal taste to not overuse them. What I find interesting is that when this question gets asked after a show, do you use themes? And I, I always say, yes. I did. I did in the, sh- the film you just watched, <laughs> but they weren't aware of it. And I think that's fine with me. I want the film to work. 
like a lot of the rules that I have that I learned from Lee Irwin, when it becomes about the score and when you become aware of what the score is doing, then it becomes another part of another character, another part of the show. I um, remember uh, uh, the the negative side of this. The first time I saw Jaws, uh, I started to get a giggling fit at the Jaws theme of those uh, that just that <laughs> just that uh, the half step back and forth. I, I thought that's just the most obvious thing in the world. It, it just dismantled the whole film for me. Now I appreciate. It. I think it's one of the finest suspense films ever made. But there, yeah. my at the time, my consciousness of the music just destroyed the movie. It's interesting is that everybody says, oh, you know, you want people to forget that you're playing. And we all have different ways of doing that, whether it's obvious or or not. But using the themes sparingly to the point that somebody in the audience wasn't aware I was doing it is fine. And that way, the use of those tunes anchors you to the heart of the character at the important moments so for the main theme or the love theme would be the first time the couple uh, declares their love for one another. Uh, I might hint at it during the meet cute part. Then you bring it around again when they're, they they split up. Then there's where they get reunited in the last reel. And maybe you reprise it over the closing titles or something like that. But Nice symmetry, um, yeah. Symmetry, but, but where you're not aware it's happening. I think that the Star Wars, after, after a while, you know, you hear a, a tune like, oh, I'll... I know we're sh- we're seeing a shot of spaceships, but I think Darth Vader is going to show up in the next shot. You know, mm-hmm. it's but that it it works for 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 something like that. Okay, as we're wrapping up, it's time for recommendations. I yeah. know that there are a lot of people who are working hard and real busy, like Ben Modell and my daughter and son-in-law and son and daughter-in-law are all working their tails off. But a lot of people have extra time right now. So I'm trying to make recommendations that are good time absorbers. And I'm recommending this book because not only is the author of a friend of both of ours, really a cohort of, of yours, Ben, Steve Massa, but he's just published a new book, Rediscovering Roscoe, who's of course Roscoe Arbuckle. It's my favorite kind of film book because it's just about film and it goes from film to film. So it's useful once you've read it to go back and use it as a film guide, but it's also something you can just sit and read. So it's that mix of film guide and a bit of readable prose. And I think we're in a phase where we're really going back to Roscoe Arbuckle as a creative film artist, not just a a fun shape on the screen, but a guy who really understood how film worked and obviously an influence on Keaton since he's Keaton's first mentor. But even without that connection, I think it's possible to look at his films and say, this guy really understands film at a deep level, at a deep structural level. Not that he would sit and expound to you, but that real deep understanding that makes a gag work by the way you shoot it, by the way you cut it, not just pointing the camera at your really clever performance that he's much more significant than that. So that's Rediscovering Roscoe by Steve Massa, published by and available from Bear Manor Media and all the usual online retailers, as well as your local independent bookseller. So why not order from them and support them in this time? Thank you, Kerr. That was episode 35. We want to thank you for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell a podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I want to thank you for listening. If you subscribe to the podcast, we thank you. Do leave a recommendation or a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or anywhere else, and we hope you share the information about the podcast with anybody you know who may be interested. If you have any questions for me, uh, send an email over my website, which is silentfilmmusic.com, and Kerr can imp- incorporate that into our FAQ section at the end of every episode. I'm on Twitter and on Instagram at silentfilmmusic, and do make a habit of watching the silent comedy watch party Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, offered for free on YouTube, where I and Steve Massa present three comedy shorts that I live accompany from my living room and we pipe Steve in from his just to keep your spirits up while we wait for movie theaters to reopen where we can actually sit near one another 
Again, thank you, Kerr Lockhart. It was a pleasure. And we'll see you next time. No, we won't see you. We'll, we'll, we'll be, you'll be hearing me <laughs> on the next episode of the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. Thanks.